With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Maddie Oatman, Senior Editor at Mother Jones Magazine and host of the Mother Jones Food Politics podcast, Bite. And I'm so pleased to be in conversation today with Chef Dominique Crenn. Bonjour. <laughs> Bonjour. Dominique is an acclaimed restaurateur, a vocal activist, and the first female chef in the United States to receive three Michelin stars. And today we are going to touch on a lot of timely topics, I hope. And to start, she'll be discussing her new book, Rebel Chef, In Search of What Matters. It's a memoir that chronicles her journey challenging the status quo and becoming one of the most successful chefs of a generation. So let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dominique. Um, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How are we doing? <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is a really strange time to be talking to you and also a great time to be talking to you. And so I think to start, I just wondered how you've been doing during the lockdown and kind of what it's been like for you. Well, it's, it's, it's been um, a quite a, an, an interesting time for me. Um, I don't know if you know, but last year I was also on the lockdown. I was going through um, about eight to nine months of cancer treatment. So I was literally at home, you know, during that time. And I was looking forward for 2020 to be the day and the time and the year where I can go out and just travel the world. Um, so the, pandem- the pandemic happened and, and then, you know, Black Lives Matter happened. But, you know, it's um, um, I looked at it as uh, a time to reflect, but uh, to reflect on who we are and what really matters with the pandemic. But I mean, I'm, I'm in the food industry, so um, we were at the front line of like, you know, serving people and making sure the community had food on the table, you know, from the medical workers and children and elderly people and obviously the community. And so it was, you know, um, we were doing what we needed to do. But yes, it's it's a very interesting time. But I think we have an, um, an incredible opportunity with what's going on in the United States right now and what's going on in the world. So... Uh, I'm excited about the future. I want to ask you a little more about that. Um, I I did really enjoy reading your book, Rebel Chef. It is quite an entertaining read. I think I read it all in one sitting. But I wondered why now, or I guess it was probably a few years ago, why it felt like a good time to write a memoir. Well, I mean, um, so about two years ago, Penguin uh, uh, came to my... Um, Asian and and they asked him if I was interested of talking about my life and and then he was like well, what this is Penguin you guys don't do cookbook I was like oh we're not interested in cooking book we want to hear a voice and I think she has a voice and and she has something to say and I always wanted to you know maybe the fact that I didn't go to cooking school it was not I felt that I had other things to say and. And um, it was the right timing. So 2018, then through 2019, we finished the book at the end of 2019. It went uh, to the publisher in, in the, I think, January 2020. And then, um, and then you know, everything happened. But I think it's, uh, you know, I'm someone that is very curious. And um, I always like to reflect and to share my story, but also to be able to inspire, but inspire others. And um, I think I use food as as a language, and now I, I use a pen as a language. So it was it was pretty natural for me to do that. And obviously, you know, I was very lucky to have an incredible uh, person like Emma Brooks that helped me to write the book. 
So English is not my first language. <laughs> I think maybe a lot of people who had seen the chef's table, for instance, or, you know, heard from you over the years knew that you were adopted. Um, but the story, the actual story of why your family chose you is kind of remarkable. Um, and I wondered if you could retell that, um, you know, the part about your brother. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a beautiful story. Um, so to give a little bit of context, you know, in the 1960s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, adoption were um, a very interesting process. And especially uh, for a, a French couple to wanted to adopt um, um, kids that had no idea where they were coming from was uh, remarkable at the time and were quite courageous. I was abandoned when I was six months and I was hanging out in an orphanage. And uh, they, call it, they called me very young, uh, the, the, the smiley the smiley face girl, you know, I was like always like bubbly and shady and wanted to do, you know, uh, to be out there and just have fun with people. And then literally my brother, I think, chose me. He was, he, he's uh, 15 years, I'm sorry, 15 months older than me. And and he was walking, I guess, with my mom and my dad through the orphanage. And somehow they just turned around and suddenly he was like holding me you know, and kissing me. And my mom was like, okay, that's the one that we want. <laughs> that little one, who is that? Um, you know, this is the two beautiful people that couldn't have kids and they wanted to, you know, share their love to, you know, kids that didn't have a chance to have, you know, a, a home. So, um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful story. You know, I think I always say it's easy to have kids, like you can, you know, you sleep with someone, you can have kids, but it's not easy to be a parent. And they were really a parent to me, so to 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 my brother and I. So um, uh, we were very lucky. So, and you know, it, it seems like you you felt that um, you didn't always fit in with kids your age, but it wasn't because you were adopted. It was it was because of some other things. You know, I've been very curious all my life and I never felt that I fit it in, 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 in one category. You know, um, if you look at my upbringing, um, I was surrounded. I literally hang out with everyone from, from everywhere. You know, it was really diverse. My group was very diverse. I didn't want to be like, you know, the girl with the long hair and hanging out just with the girl. You know, no, I just, it was not me. I wanted to, I was a tomboy, first of all. I wanted to be a soccer player. I wanted to just tell people that, hey, I'm here to see me, you know. And I wanted to be curious about others. And I wanted to learn more about what was the others. But I was also very young age. I was, um, they called me the Zorro, which, um, I, yeah, I, um, I literally was all about justice. If you, if, if anyone is bullying in my school or anyone is, you know, bothering my brother, my friend, I was there and I was there to kick some ass. <laughs> I'm also not sure I've, <laughs> I, I believe it. I really do. <laughs> I'm not sure I've heard of that many um, 11 year olds who are that entranced with politics um, to the point that you begged your parents to take a trip to communist Poland. What do you remember about that trip? Well, I, I remember that I, I was watching, you know, the TV and it was during the Cold War. And then I was then I talked to my dad. And I was just like, dad is just tell me about this. I don't understand why, you know, what's going on. And he started to talk to me and I'm like, you know what? You have friends in Poland. Let's go to Poland. And, I'm, and he's like, you're 11 years old. What are you, how are you going to get to Poland? It's like, well, you have friends in Poland. My brother and I can go to Poland. I know there is a train that go from France to the East. Remember, the East Germany, Germany and the West Germany was still happening. So it was about 34 hours of train. 
And you say, well, you can put us on the train and then we will then tell your friend and they come and pick us up at the train station. And it's like, dumb, it's not that easy. And I'm like, this is very easy because I said to my dad, I don't want to learn through the media. I want to see for myself. And my dad was like, and my mom was like, okay. So it was my brother and I on the train. And it was, a, it was, a, it was quite a very, it was very, um, uh, one of the most incredible experience I ever had, because remember, it was a, it was probably two, three o'clock in the morning. We were in a train, and then suddenly we heard a lot of of, of voices. It was German voices, and then then my brother and I, and I looked outside of the window, and and it was like those German soldier line up with their rifle and their dog, and they got into the train, and they were like passport passport that's what i heard you know and we were in uh, east germany and east germany was not free at the time and then uh so that was a uh, you know for 11 years old that was a little bit scary and um then when we arrived in poland and i fell in love with the people of poland and their story and their struggle and i just i was just i was taken and i understood that politics didn't have anything to do with the people that were living in the country. It had to do with people in power that often were not the voice of the people that were living in the country. So, and so I, I kind of knew that very young. And Yeah, that, that concept has kind of... Um something I hold on to the last couple of years <laughs> traveling outside of the U.S. I think people around the world, many people have a sense of that. That So I, um, I, and it's also to say to people, you know, do not judge people because they, they're from a certain country. Get to know them. Get to know them and, and really open your heart and, and your mind to others that uh, might not be the voice of whatever president is at the helm, you know. So it's just, you know, it gives you um, um, a different way and sense to look at humanity differently, you know. And um, I think it was really impregnated inside of me for at a very young age. And also not understanding where my uh, DNA was from also. I, I knew that I could... Um, uh, present myself to a certain, you know, privilege or certain elite because I didn't, you know, I'm just a human, you know, and I don't really know anything about myself. So, so it's been, yeah, very young. It kind of opened up, you know, I don't know why I'm not a politician today. <laughs> Maybe because you know all of that. <laughs> and so you famously did not go to cooking school or even work in a restaurant before getting your first job. Um, but you did make sandwiches at a summer camp and you, a country club and you were, and they were phenomenally good, you say. So I, I wonder like what made your sandwiches stand, stand out? Because I was, um, I wanted to use the best ingredient like my mom and my, and my grandmother taught me. And I knew it was all about the bread. And it was about layering flavors with the best ingredient you could find uh, in front of you at the supermarket. So, and I, I was very, you know, taking this very seriously, you know, I had my baguette and it needed to be fresh and from the best baker. And then I had to layer flavors, you know, it could be, you know, it could be saucisson, it could be ham, it could be tomato, but everything needs to be layered inside making sure a little bit of salt and pepper, a little cornichon, a touch of butter. That was this. Less was more, but it was all about the bread and the ingredient inside was elevating the taste of the, the beautiful baguette that people were biting into it. So, and, and I think that's what a sandwich should be. It should be less and more. It's more. It should be all about beautiful ingredient, but it, you don't have to, it, it doesn't have to be abundance like, 10,000 thing. It's just, you want to test, you know, it's, it's testing. It's very important, you know? Well, I was going to say, I think you might be proud. My household has, my husband made his own mayonnaise, which is probably more common for 
for you, but um, it has really elevated our sandwich game recently. <laughs> I think I think it, it teaches you when you take care of what you have in front of you. It could be a sandwich. It could be a, you can write it and you can take a picture. You you can you know take you know do painting or singing if you take care of what you're supposed to do at that moment. I think it can elevate so much more. The result can be so much more than than if you just like don't care about it and cut corner. So that's that's what I I was doing. I'm not saying I'm making the best sandwich, and I'm not saying that American sandwiches are not good. It was just I didn't understand them. So, um, <laughs> so um, you and I have something in common, which is we both moved to San Francisco in our early twenties without ever ever having been here before. So, and, and it seemed like you actually chose the city kind of randomly. What do you think it would have been like for you to move to today's San Francisco? Well, I think, um, I don't know if you were, it would have been the same feeling. Maybe, I don't know, close maybe. I, I, you know, San Francisco changed so much and there is so many layers of different things that's happening. But, um, you know, I always thought, you know, San Francisco is magi- magical in a lot of ways. It's a place of where you, you feel free of who you are and, and you're not judged by anyone. And it's also a place that it's a place of innovation. It's a place that started a lot of different movements. Um, it's a place of diversity. There's a lot of different culture here. There's a lot of history. Um, and it's a place that um, I think that maybe with just your luggage and nothing within your pocket, you can, I think you can make, you can make something out of yourself because it's surrounded that people that listen. And that's what San Francisco has been for me. And still today, you know, there is still, you know, I think the homeless problem is a problem for me that I don't understand why we're not tackling this and we're not helping all those wonderful people that don't have any housing when, you know, it's just, I don't know. But that's another, you know, I think that's another conversation. Do you, I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts on what the city could be doing better in that regard? Yeah, I think we, I think we need to um, uh, stop to be complacent and start to go the conversation and start to um, realize that, um, you know, those people are very important and they were a uh, long time ago. They've been, they've been, you know, the core of what San Francisco was, you know, and to be dismissive and to invite maybe other you know, company here to build a city and you want the city to be rich, you gotta you gotta take care of your community first, you know? And I think it's a conversation and I think, you know, you know, honestly, perhaps this pandemic's gonna per- perhaps help us to rebuild and redefine San Francisco. And hopefully, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of, of those homeless people and they are wonderful. Their story are amazing. I mean, I not long time ago I was talking to this young woman that literally had a tent about a block away from one of my restaurants, which is Petit Crane. And I started to talk to her and I said, you, you know, my restaurant is here. Do you need anything? What? And she said, no, you know, I, I live here because I, I, I'm homeless. I don't have enough money to be in, uh, to rent a house or an apartment, but I have a job. And I was just like, Wow. Yeah. So there is different layering, you know. And so what you see is like why we have to charge so much money. Everybody should be should have a roof under their head. You know, they should have a home to be. So I would love to have a discussion with Mayor London. And um, are you listening, Mayor London? Maybe she tuned in. <laughs> we have a lot. I have a lot. I think a lot of people have a lot of ideas, and we need to tackle that. This is this is unacceptable. So. Another issue um, you're probably you know well familiar with is just uh, you know there's been a, a worker shortage for restaurants for many years. Um, the cost of labor on top of just the high living expense, um, and it's it's in a a business model that already has such thin margins to begin with, which is making operating restaurants here increasingly difficult. Um, 
and that was even before the pandemic. So I want to, I wonder if you could talk about the ways that you've made your restaurant a place people want to work and can work um, and stay here despite the challenges of. Right. I mean, yes. I mean, obviously it's been, um, it's been a challenge, I think all over uh, the United States, but all over the world too. Um, so what we, um, we, we understood that challenge and, um, you know, we don't want a cook or anyone that work at the restaurant that need to uh, rent a place with 20,000 people because that's the, that's the only thing that they can afford. We want them to be able to have a life um, uh, that is healthy and that is uh, inspiring and, and work is work, but is also uh, making sure that they feel that when they go home, they can also breathe, you know. So we um, very early on, um, we, um, you know, Minimum wage was not the starting point for us. We wanted to make sure that um, we wanted to pay a wage where um, it was livable. Um, I, um, with my um, with my business partner, you know, the bottom line was not about making profit, but making sure that we were also offering. Um, a medical insurance for Owen Kaplan, vacation, a place that uh, they could feel that, oh, I'm going to work, but I'm also I'm, I'm being taken care of. Uh, we developed a lot of different programs for education um, and, and also give a space of people, well, you know, I'm a cook right now, but I would love to, you know, become, you know, maybe a sommelier. So give them, you know, a space also for us to... So, so kind of create a family and give them the tool so they felt that they were taken care of and they were seeing. So that way they could say, well, you know what? I want to grow within the company and I know I have a space that I can grow. So creating that space so and to reinvest in, in, in the people that were working with us. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not juggling, you know, it's it's also you know for us to make that 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 point that yes we do have a business yes obviously there is money involved but people that are working with us they're making that business so we need to take care of them so it's kind of this this idea of of making sure that everybody was seeing and taking care of and believe me it's not easy you know it's not easy so with this pandemic I just you know we came together and I never believed in tips I never believe in tips and if anyone knows about the tips you know it comes so far away this story is I mean, I think it has to do with a little bit of slavery, you know. And so um, I would never believe that, oh, I'm going to give you tips because I think you did a good job. No, I always believe that we need to pay people and, and, and to pay for the job and their value. And it's very important, you know. And and if someone want to, leave, want to leave, something great, but you need to pay a wage that someone deserves because they, they're doing the work and it's tip or no tips should not be involved. So um, when we reopening actually Crane and we are eliminating eliminating the there's no more server. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's sommelier and and my kitchen that is doing an amazing work and they're making the food so they want to serve the food to the guests. And no more, no more middle people, you know. So, and if they want to leave um, anything for anyone, that money will go across the board to the people in the kitchen. So their their wages, you know, would be maybe more than you know. But it would be, you know, they know they know who's the wages that they they have right now. They can, I think. I'm, I'm going to give you, a, a, I think, a CDP that start at at Atelier that just come out of school. I think. They're making a minimum of close to sixty thousand dollars a year, just coming out. So and and with you know other things and then there is you know forward camp. So it's it's pretty it's pretty good you know it's not, but it's not twenty or thirty you know it's not like yeah 
And then, you know, and then with uh, the sommelier, it's about giving them a salary and then if the, and giving them also a part of the business, a commission, you know. So trying to create um, um, really a system where everybody is equal. Everybody is treated equally, you know. And so you got rid of tipping back in 2016, I think, um, at least for Atelier Kren. Um Yeah, and, but, but I have to say that people keep tipping. Interesting. And so, um, so the, the, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, they're not, they're not, um, um, working for, oh, I have to make so much tea tonight. No, they come to work, they know exactly what they're making and they're happy. And then if there is extra money, this is like, oh my God, this is great, you know. So it just changed the way, but I, I never liked tipping. Uh, tipping is something I didn't grow up with. Um, I know this is, um, I don't think it's a good way of um, um, rewarding someone when you pay them maybe a dollar or two dollars an hour and then the company think, oh, yeah, I'm just not going to pay a lot of money. But, you know, they have tips so they can leave with the tips. It's like, no, don't don't think that way, you know, so. Yeah, it it forces people in certain positions to to have to do things they might not want to do to try and make up that money. So do you think all restaurants should get rid of tipping? You know, it's, we've been having, I've been having a lot of conversation with a lot of different uh, friend, uh, friends in San Francisco that are chefs that are own restaurants. And yes, they want the tips to go away and they want to be able, you know, uh, to uh, pay, you know, their employee uh, the money they deserve. But, you know, there's a lot of things also needs to happen. Also, you know, my industry, um, it's been quite invisible for a lot of people, you know, we just, we've been treated in a way that is, it's hard, you know, we are on survival mode every day. We survive every day, you know, and, um, you know, I think lawmakers need to change the law. We need some help. Uh, we can't, you know, we, we pay a lot of taxes. We pay a lot of, of things. And at the end of the day, it's just like, if you break even, it's great. But the next day you need to go back to work and you need to feed people. So during those pandemic, you know, when you, those mom and pop and, and they had to close because they were not going to do tech out. Tech out was not going to make them surviving. So I don't know. It's just, I think we are into a bigger conversation right now with a lot of, with the restaurant association and with, with the governor and, and, and with the mayor and to try to change the way we've been treated um, as, as an industry. And, and it's interesting, you know, we, the small businesses represent, you know, we are, I think, 50.6 million people that are employed in my industry, you know, and then 4% of the GPD, but we also uh, con- the connection of other industry. You know, if there is no food, there is no farmers, there is no fishmonger. There is no um, uh, essential, you know, people that will come and, and give us, you know, salt and olive oil and, you know, or the wine, you know. We connect a lot of industries. So um, so we need to be taken care of now. Definitely. I mean, I think that's what really draws me to covering food. And as a journalist, um, it allows you to access so many other things, stories. And... I think also forcing people to ask questions about their food forces larger conversations. So you're not shy about that. Um, Last year, you took meat off your menu, uh, except for seafood. So first, I'm curious, because I I have not lived in France, and I'm not a French-trained cook. Would that be a crazier thing for the French or for Americans? Like, do you think you would have gotten more shock and awe for doing that in France or less than here? Maybe, but not not anymore. There is more. Cause I was in Paris last year, and there is more uh, restaurants that are serving vegetable and seafood or just vegan than there well, is in the United States. But I want to tell you, so I when I opened uh, Petit Creme, I never had meat on my menu. We never had any bad product. I never advertised it as vegetable and, and, and the, 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 the fish from, you know, from different fishmonger from the Bay Area. Never advertised it. 
Um, I took meat out of Atelier two years ago, and then Barcren was uh, last year. And the reason why I did this is that the uh, the, fa- the the meat factory, those industry, needs to go away. And it's it was for me to to take a stand. We need to understand where the food come from. I mean, I don't. I know a lot of little rancher that you doing. You know, you know they treat their animal very well. And I'm not. I'm not against them. But I wanted to make. I wanted the industry to wake up. It is like. I mean, have you? We 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 are a, a country of high consumption. Consumption. I mean, the meat that you're eating from whatever you know fast food. Do you know where the meat come from? I don't want to give that to my children. Yeah, you know, and it's it's not it's not it's not good, you know. And I think we need to realize that we need to balance the way that we eating and the way that we producing and the way that we engaging with nature, you know. And I think if we can get there, um, I'm not talking about taking meat out of the menu. I'm just saying that we need to reflect on the consequences of these. Uh, after the 1950, when the industrialization of food happened, what's been happening? You know, 50 was not that long ago. Six, that was 60 years. And look at the world. We are in trouble right now. You know, climate and, and, and the way that, you know, the inequality also, the food injustice. Uh, we, we saw exactly through that pandemic that, you know, the first uh, com- uh, community that were affected was mostly, you know, African-American and, and the Latino community. And then if you really peel the layer, you know exactly that those community, they don't, ac- they don't have access to the food that they should have access to. But if you look at the story of everything up to the 1950 and 60, the best food in America was the food cooked by African-American. Amazing. And then the SP alone start to give money to those big companies like McDonald's and Burger King and whatever. And they went to those communities and killed the culture and offered them something that was much cheaper. It's like, oh, I can give you food, you know. And then then the culture disappeared. And then, and then what happened is just like we took at the access of good food from them. So, I mean, it's just, it's so political um, and I want to change that. We have the power to change that right now. And we need to look as, as a consumer, you know, when you spend you, your money, you need to know where your money comes from. Buying is an act of activism. Uh, eating is an act of activism. Look at everything, what you do in life. It, everything needs to have a purpose. Ask questions. And I think that it's what people want right now. They want, if they walk into a restaurant, they want to know what the chef is doing. What is their involvement with climate change, with the food chain, with their community? How do you work with your community? Do you buy food because they are in season? Do you write a menu because you don't care? because you just want to write a menu or just, just want to write a menu because you understand that when you cook this food is also going back to your community and then you're involving your farmers and your fishmonger and then maybe the person in Petaluma that's making amazing cheese, you know. What is your purpose, you know? You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. I think um, for a lot of people, the thought of giving up meat, um, people talk about doing that for environmental reasons. And I, I know that's one of the reasons you, you did it. Um, just during this pandemic, you know, the meat packing plants were the site of some of the worst outbreaks. Um, and I think this really revealed to a lot of people the conditions of working inside those plants and the fragility of the lives of people who work inside those plants. Um, but then, you know, we, we heard from the federal government, the line was, we need to keep these plants open because Amer- we can't have a meat shortage. So uh, my point is, um, do you think people will start giving up meat for humanitarian reasons? Are you hearing 
people talk like that now? I think you know I've been so uh, curious about the young the the young generation, and I think there's some data just came out not a long time ago that is up to thirty percent of youngsters that are vegetarian and vegan. So you're wow. seeing, you know, um, yes, I really think that um, uh, to that people understand that this is this is much needed. You know, I mean. If you someone that is curious and really want to know that what you're putting in your uh, body and then you learn that the way that the meat that has been processed is it's not that great, you know, it's like and then it's it's coming to yourself, to your body, you know, you know, we all energy, you know, that I think, um, I really think that it's changing a lot and it's been changing a lot. You know, a few years ago, I think the vegetarian and the vegan industry were probably at zero. Now they're like billion of dollars, you know? So, but you know, we have to, you know, I don't want to go to the extreme. I think we need to rebalance who we are as human and what we're eating and what we're producing. And for me, the first things for me is to uh, look at my community, what the farmers are, are doing, uh, what they're producing. I want to help them. I want to help them to be able to make their, their farm uh, valuable and then so people can just buy also their produce. Uh, you know, we are very lucky. We are very lucky because we have a farm up in Sonoma. And during, during this pandemic, it was not about us buying food from somebody else. We used the farm to make the food. And it was all vegetarian. And uh, because I knew and I understand also the good of, you know, healthy, beautiful food cook, you know, from farm to table, you know. And I didn't need any protein, you know. And, and, um, because you can find protein in the vegetable too. You know, you can find. Yeah. You know, I mean, Potatoes have protein. There is, you know, there is country, you know, I mean, there's part of India. It's, they've been on the vegetarian diet forever. Uh, there's places in Japan too. It's just so, you know, I think meat has become this thing about um, classes and luxury and so for someone to say, oh, I'm going to go to a stakeout, that just make them feel so powerful. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's, you need to understand, you know, you need to be curious and understand really. But I think it's, it's shifting, you know, now. And I, you know, I, I, I love it. I love it. But I don't want to be extreme once again. I'm not about all the way veganizing because I, you know, there is some vegan food that I'm not sure about it because I'm looking at the ingredient and I'm like, mm, where'd I come from? You know, there's nothing organic. There is, what is this? You know, so I think we have to come to the middle, but uh, those factory farming needs to stop. Very Um. So the way that you work with food has often been compared to how a modern artist works. Um, you're not just focusing on flavor. You're trying to capture a memory or evoke an emotion. Um, and I wonder, you know, the, the twin crises that we've talked about or that you brought up earlier that you, you had lockdown during cancer and then during this pandemic. Um, and I wonder if that has approached your art or sorry, influenced your approach to your art, your ideas for dishes or given you any new ideas? Oh, yes, totally. You know, I mean, I think um, before I was definitely uh, trying to uh, tap into memories of my childhood and my also my travel. And then um, then when the cancer uh, happened, happen, you know, and it's funny because I always eat, you know, I eat healthy, you know, but um, uh, I can have, I love my chocolate. I love, you know, I'm, I'm not like, you know, I just, I like, I like food, you know, I like good food and I always wanted to know, you know, where they come from, where the food come from. But with, it's interesting with the cancer, he had allowed me to be curious and do a lot of research about food. And, um, and, and, and what food can bring, you know, to the body. So, so through the cooking also from atelier to, uh, petit crème to bar crème, I mean, the dishes, the dishes that we make 
every ingredient has a purpose. It's really, we really, we are so interesting about this. And, and that's why, we, that's how we've been creating dishes. And um, I'm also, you know, been very uh, uh, fascinated by the history of California and mm-hmm. the Native American and here and how they were dealing with food and, and the, the earth and the planet and, 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 and that way of thinking and, and, and that philosophy really um, uh, inspire me. So um, we, um, I'm, we're creating a dish right now. It's called California. And, nice. and um, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's all grain and vegetable and, and, and uh, mostly allium because allium, it's, it's everywhere in California. But it's uh, also... Um, um, trying to tap into the story of the time and space where I am. So, yeah, I mean, you know, those those moments uh, bring a lot of curiosity within me, and I and, and I always try to integrate them in the food because food is a language. You know, food helps to communicate maybe a sense of place, but also uh, a narrative that you want to express to others. Um, I just. W- no, I, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if you've, there's a new film out called Gather that's just premiered. It's a documentary on um, Native American chefs around the country that I'm looking forward to seeing. Maybe you've already seen it, but. Um, but it just also, um, it, it, it's so interesting. You know, I think we can find the answer for today and for tomorrow when we look back to, from yes to the past. Yeah. We always find answer in the past. And, um, I always believe that, um, you know, where, you know, with food, you know, the, you know, when fermentation came into, you know, being so uh, trendy, it's, it's been down for centuries, yeah. you know. So it's, yeah, I always look at, in the past to try to find new, new, new way of thinking because there is always answer, I think, there. Well, I just have um, one or two more questions, but I want to remind people that they will have a chance in 10 minutes for this Q&A. And so they can ask questions in the chat or comment section. Um, And so we're coming up on that. But um, I just wanted to get into an issue on a lot of people's minds, uh, especially right now. And and that's the fight for racial justice. so what do you think is a restaurant's responsibility in creating or fighting for racial equity? Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, I've been, um, within myself, I've been fighting this for a long time. Equality has been always a must. Um, you know, my industry um, needs to really look deep because there is a lot of issues inequality, racial issue, um, I mean, woman, gay, you know, it's, 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 we need to, we need to do a lot of work. So what I will like for my peers and my colleagues to do, it's really to rethink about, you know, to really reflect on who they are and do their work, do their work um uh with themselves and, and 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 don't just hire people you because you think don't hire just a woman because suddenly we have the me too movement you know don't hire you know um um, um lgbt person because oh it's gay pride months and i just don't want you know people to think that i'm do not do this do your own work be the person that you want to be and give a voice and an and opportunity to also other and bring diversity to your restaurant. Bring that diversity. You're going to see when you have diversity and when you start to see people and listen to their story, it's going to bring so much more to who you are and what you're making because food is energy. And those people, anybody that work with you, you're not on the line every day making the food. They are making the food, and this is their voice on the plate also. So, um, I mean, I was talking to my friend Russell the other day, and my, fr- my friend Tanya Holland also, that is uh, an incredible chef. 
Bron Kitchen, Bron Sugar Kitchen. Uh, <laughs> wow, amazing. I love her. Uh, we know each other for a long time and people need to wake up and action needs to be taken now. And, and yes, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable for people to look at themselves, And but y- y- we have to do that. Everyone has to do that. And they had to do that a long time ago, but, um, you know, Unfortunately, you know, um, they didn't, but now it's the time and it's, it's, a, it's an incredible time and it's a beautiful time. And um, it should be, you know, you know, we say that food bring people together. We all say that. So let's walk the walk and talk the talk. If you say that food bring people together, bring people also together within your own uh, company. And um, don't um, don't discriminate. I um, don't. It's not okay. It's never been okay. It's not okay. So we're going to see some changes. I think. Have any of the protests um, or conversations right now sparked conversations in your staff about changes? you want to make, you know, in the kitchen or the dining room? I mean, you know, is, you know, we've been um, a company that is been uh, that uh, fight for inclusivity since the beginning. So um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm telling you is I, I almost cried the other day because every single member of my team, they, they, they work faster than ever because they wanted to, to be a part of the protest. And it, it happened a few years ago when we did the protest, you know, the woman march. And my team were like, can we close the restaurant for a couple hours? And can we? And I'm like, yeah. And my team, those youngsters that work with me, I'm, I'm just so in awe with who they are. And they are such the future of the other now, but also the future of, of, of this country. And, um, yeah, every day it's, um, it's, it's a beautiful discussion. And I'm just, I'm just so, I, I'm so grateful, but I feel very lucky. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Dominique. I have a few more questions from our audience. Um, I don't think we'll get to them all, but um, I'll pick my favorites. (laughs) Um, So Stephanie wonders, you had a lot of confidence at a young age. Um, What explains how you managed to keep keep that and pursue your career without getting discouraged? Good question. Thank you, uh, Stephanie. Well, um, I was very young and my dad, um, I was, I was talking to him about success and, and I was, talking to him about him seeing a lot of people coming in and out of, of, of the house and because he was a politician. And I was like, wow, dad, you're so successful. You got everything you want. And, and it was like, Don, this is not success. You have to have, you need to know yourself and you have, need to have confidence. You know, when you go out of this world, when you have a platform, you need to give back to others because things he's been giving to you, but you need to com- be confident in, in, in life. And, and remember, no one is better than you, but you're not better than anyone else either. But you go out there with this, this their, their set of mind and people are going to go at you and going to try to punch you, but all, always know who you are inside. Get to know yourself. And I think when you get at a very young age, if you give that that tool to a young child and tell them that, hey, it's okay, get to know who you are. You are as good as other. No one is better than you, but you're not better than, than other. And and it just gives them a different view, I think, of the world. And they can go to this world with this confidence that I think every child needs, you know. So and it's not easy. At times, it's not easy, but um, that's that's what I walk. I'm, I'm walk. That's what I walk into through life. This is the way I walk every day, you know. And um, it's been it's been rich and incredible, and 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 that's who I am. So that's what I would say to people: know yourself and find your own confidence. 
because you have a voice. So you're known for breaking barriers. This question comes from Lynn. Um, you're known for breaking barriers. What barriers are still left in the food industry? <laughs> a lot of barriers. Um, <laughs> well, I think um, um, the first of all, equality needs to. It's there is a lot of barriers still. There is a lot of inequality. There is also uh, pay. I think everyone needs to be paid. Uh, uh, for their time and be uh, everybody is valuable and every need, everybody needs to be looked at not as a number but as a person that is very valuable for your company so that it's uh, it needs to happen um, I think the the ego in the in the kitchen sometimes needs to calm down and um, I mean we have a lot of work to do in my industry like I think we talk about this so um you know, I want the media to understand that food is, uh, there is there is no uh, discrimination with food. So don't uh, put women or other people in a, in a box when you put the other on top of the world. Uh, that needs to still happen, you know. Um, and, you know, the way that you do, you, you, you do those things, it's, I think, to come to the table and to have a conversation with everyone. And not be not to alienate anyone. I want to invite anyone that has been, I want to say, an asshole in the kitchen, and treating people not the right way, and thinking there that they, that no one has a voice. I'm inviting them to the table. Hey, you were not perfect. I'm not perfect. Let's come together and trying to find the best way to bring people together and and to look at humanity as a whole. And then food would be the catalyst to all that. So, so I'm, that's my answer. Um, so this question comes from Jeremy, and he said it's a question for either of us. Um, what do you think of what's going on at Bon Appetit? And do you think the magazine Bon Appetit, do you think this will have a lasting effect on food media? So I, I think that it will have a lasting effect. Um, I think there have been a lot of sharp essays and um, writers on this issue of, you know, um, racism in, in food journalism and um, in media and the fact that the media is so predominantly white. There have been a lot of people sounding the alarm on that for a lot of years, but I don't think it's um, this conversation has, has happened at, you know, such a, a prominent publication. And I, and I think that, you know, the conversation that what happened at Bon Appetit recently forced is going to reverberate much more loudly. That's my hope. Um, and I, I just really feel like we need to get a more diverse set of voices writing about food and writing about their stories because really food is personal identity. It's, it's culture, it's history. And that can't just come from white journalists. So. so. No, I mean, no, I mean, I, I, I would, I, I mean, I think it's been a, a problem with, with, uh, the food industry that there is just um, the people that have been writing a lot of things, you know, the, it was always the same people. There was, there was no diversity. They didn't know the struggle or the story of others. So they were not interested in other people's story because they thought it was just one way of doing stories, you know, and, um, I'm not going to say, you know, who I was talking to, but the other day I was just like, what are you guys doing with your publication? I was like, well, you know, we try to have, you know, African-American, you know, um, and then others as being, you know, a journalist, but we can't find them. And I'm like, what? So that, that <laughs> narrative need to stop, like need to stop. What we need to do right now, everyone needs to come to the table need to take their own responsibility and need to start to do the work. That's all we need to do right now. We not need to find any excuses. So, you know, we couldn't do that. Oh, well, you know, we could never talk about women because there is no woman chef. I'm like, what? I, I came in San Francisco in the nineties. And then you had, it was like most of the restaurant was lead where we, with, with amazing chef that mostly were, were women, you know, it's like where that things come from. So 
Let's talk about excuses. Start to take your responsibility and start to do the work. Do not ask what to do. Do the work. Do your research. Be a journalist. Tell the story. Don't just put, you know, you know, a list. Start to go to, the, to those restaurants. Talk to people. Really get into, you know, and maybe it would be good for you to be curious, but also allow other voice. You know, there is there's a lot of different journalists out there. They come from different backgrounds. And I think they are amazing writers, but they never also been giving a voice. You know, I mean, in the publishing company, you know, world also, there's a lot of books that were never published because they didn't feel that it was relevant to what the society wanted. And it's crazy to me. Um, I'm just, no, I want to hear everybody's voice. It's not because you have blue eyes and blonde hair that you better than someone that has dark eyes and dark hair, you know, or dark skin. It's like, who are you to define yourself that you're superior than others? It's crazy to me. And um, we're going to see there is some amazing story. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, dis- I'm a disciple I'm a, and I'm a fan, fan of Jim Baldwin. Jim Baldwin, one of the most incredible uh, writer and poets in America. And he happened to be African-American. I love Michael, Malcolm X, you know, but I also love Sartre. I also love the, the Beauvoir, Simone de Beauvoir. I love everything because I, I love people that write good. If someone that write, you know, that cook amazing food, I really don't care where they come from and which country, if the food is great, I just love it. I want to know. And, I, and I'm interested in that, you know, because food tells story. So I think they need to they need to start to do the work now and stop apologizing. Take your own responsibility and do the work. That's 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 how we're gonna move forward. So this um, question comes from Raquel and she wonders, are there any up and coming chefs we should be paying attention to? Hmm. A lot, I think. I think we need to pay attention to to people that we haven't paid attention to. So um, I think it would be nice to go to your community and, and, and find, you know, people that you are excited and inspire you. Um, you know, I always thought that cooking is a way of communicating with others, but I think for me, a true chef is someone that tells a story and tells their own story. It's very personalized. And I think a lot of people now, I think I, I, I'm just so excited um, I've never been interested to go to a restaurant where the menu is exactly the same menu than other restaurants. I'm always be attracted to go to a restaurant to understand the person that is cooking the food. You know, um, I have this uh, this uh, I have this story that um, I was in New Orleans um, two years ago, and I was doing um, a talk with. Uh, Woman, uh, woman in my industry, and empowering woman through food, and um, it was just so inspiring. And and it was this young cook that came to me, and he had my book, my cook, my first book. And it's like, can you sign it? It's like, yeah. And it's like, oh, where do you work? It's like, ah, work at the Commander Palace. Oh, yes, I I was there last night. It was great. It's like, I know everybody was like so excited. And I'm like, no, it was really great. And then he asked me, Severin asked me, um, I would love to come and, and stash. I'm like, yeah, great. Okay, this is my email. You know, this is my sous chef. You know, you can like, and he came and he stayed with us for a year. Wow. And then we had long talk. And Severin is someone that uh, lived in New Orleans and his, his route is in Senegal. And he was asking me, um, should I go back to where I come from, Senegal, because I want to bring that, all those knowledge that I have. And I want to bring, you know, I want to bring my country to the level of French cuisine and Italian. And, and I'm like, just bring your you, you country in a way that you cook the food that you know this is what the story is going to be. 
and he went back to Senegal and then he's opening his restaurant in in New Orleans, he went back to New Orleans. So um, I think he's, he's been doing when he was with when he was working with us, uh, he was doing some pop ups. So I'm very excited about uh, about what he's gonna uh, bring uh, to the table. And um, there's a lot of very talented people, and we need to start to look at people and 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 chef and maybe little restaurant, you know, that maybe we haven't take the time because of the media, they just give you a list and this is what you need to be able to eat. You know, let's be more open, you know, and, and I think it starts with the community and it starts with us, you know, also I love to go out and to restaurants that nobody talk about because I love the food and I love the people and that, that, that really bring richness within me also. And cause I'm learning more, about other things and maybe that also can be a part of my DNA when I cook. Oh, I got this flavor at this restaurant. And I remember when I talked to the chef, she was telling me the story of her grandmother or, and then suddenly I bring maybe that little spice inside of my cooking. So it's very rich on a lot of ways. So, you know, that way. What was, um, what was the chef's name you were talking about? The one who's opening the restaurant and in, in the- uh, his name is Severin and I'm going to, uh, uh, try to find the name of his restaurant so I can, I just did, um, um, a little, um, Severin. I think it's, uh, it's Nola and he sent me everything. It's like, chef, look, he's so proud. I love him. I think he's so proud. Uh, you see, uh. So a quick question then while you're looking is what is, and this question comes from Elizabeth because it's my favorite question. What is your favorite chocolate? Uh, um, it's the chocolate that my pastry chef is making, Juan mm-hmm. Contreras. Uh, so he's been, um, okay, I don't know why I can't find him on Instagram. His name is Severin. Oh, yeah, here you go. Um, his restaurant is called Dakar Nola. Dakar nice. is, you know, so is in, uh, um, he's amazing. He's, there you go. Everybody want to follow him is. Dakar Nolan in New Orleans. We, so my, um, so Juan's making chocolate, literally. We're making everything from scratch, actually. And it's the best chocolate I've ever um, uh, ate. And he works with a lot of different farmers, you know, and, and uh, some chocolate, you know, chocolate come, can come from the Dominican Republic, from can come from all over the world, you know, where and and um, but it's is it's um, it's probably darker. Uh, I would say seventy five percent maybe cacao, mm-hmm. uh, but I love praline also chocolate praline and is praline praline is. You give me praline and chocolate with praline is, you have me. I I, like, I can do anything you want me to do. I mean, it depends what it is, but uh, (laughs) my father used to, uh, every Sunday, he used to go to uh, the the bakery and used to obviously bring, you know, chocolate croissant and chausson and all that. But he used to bring me that bouchée au chocolat that was made with praline and hell's in it. And it's mm-hmm. like this, this boucher that, you know, it's a hard shell, but when you, you eat it, it's like soft, praline chocolate. And it's, I, I mean, it's delicious. So you're making us all very hungry. <laughs> so, So it is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Let's hear it. Oh, okay, 60-second. To change the world is be, be the person that you want to be to change the world. And then when you start to understand yourself and you really want to walk and talk the talk, it's about education, it's about humanity, it's about... Uh, curiosity. It's about spending your money uh, with purpose. Uh, it's about making sure that the next generation have the tool to be uh, better. And and the work is now because we gotta forge the way for a new world for the for the for the new kids out there. I have two six years old, so believe me, 
I want to change the world. What one mouth at a time through food, but to also curiosity and to do the work also. So, um, you know, we have the responsibility now. I don't want them to to have a world that is not working anymore. So, so come together about education, and it start with us as adults, and 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 make sure that the next generation has the right tool to be able to be better people that we were. And it's all about humanity. Let's come together. Thank you, Dominique Cran, for joining us uh, today at Inforum. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We'd like to remind the audience that copies of Dominique's new book, Rebel Chef, are available to purchase now. Um, if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Natty Oatman and thank you. Stay safe.